forgot to introduce myself earlier. Some of you I haven't met. My name's Dave Silvernail. And uh, glad to be here and glad to see you here. So we are in the middle of a uh, year-long series on the book of Jeremiah. It's one of the books that is not often preached. And if you just counted words, it's actually the longest book in the Bible. Um, and today's passage is no exception. We'll be going through two chapters, Jeremiah chapter 24 and chapter 25. Uh, and since it's uh, so long, we're going to be um, sort of reading it as we go through it, but really focusing in on some key verses. So you want to have your sermon outline uh, in front of you. You want to have your Bibles uh, open. encourage you to bring your Bibles on uh, Sunday morning. I encourage you to bring real Bibles, too, not just your electronic ones. Um, there's a reason for that, but I don't have time for it here. Uh, but let's begin with a word of prayer, and then we'll get into it. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and we need it. So once again, we come to hear it. We need to know that everything that we need for faith and practice comes from the mouth of the Lord. We need to know that when your word is open before us, it is the word of the Lord. However, we know we're not very good at listening to you. So this morning, give us ears to hear, minds to understand, and the will to obey what you have for us in your word. Thank you that Jeremiah is a prophetic book that builds our faith and points us to Christ. And so we pray, speak through your word this morning, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, as some of you know, it's been an interesting time in my life lately. I have been losing my hearing over the last two years, and it's gotten to the point where my hearing loss has technically been labeled as moderately severe. Uh, three weeks ago, I had tubes put in my ears. Not a fun experience. Um, and while the tube, tubes seem to have helped reduce the ear pain, they've had the unintended effect of increasing my hearing loss. And that's because, if I understand all of this correctly, uh, they affect the eardrum's ability to vibrate, which creates a muffling effect as if I were wearing headphones. In addition to the hearing loss, my tinnitus, or ringing in the ears, has gotten a lot louder to the point where I can no longer drown it out with music. And I've been put on some pretty high-powered steroids, which has the side effect of making me mean. But I don't think you'll be able to tell since you all know that I'm already mean. So the good news is that hearing aids have been ordered and should be here in a few weeks. And they will help with the hearing loss and so not expect to have any effect on the inner ear pain, though they may help with the tinnitus, we'll see. So why am I telling you all of this? Well, because I want you to feel sorry for me and get me good things to eat. <laughs> Seriously, um, I'm telling you this because the whole experience has made me far more sensitive to what it means to hear. So much of our experience depends on our ability to hear and to hear correctly. Now, Joanne will tell you that I've 
had selective hearing for years. Uh, but now I have a good excuse. So this forced me into a long conversation uh, with my audiologist on Thursday. And she was very patient as I had lots of questions for her. And I needed her help in trying to understand what's going on. For example, I've noticed that reducing your ability to hear also has an effect on how well you speak. This is why deaf people struggle so much with speaking clearly because they don't know what the words are supposed to sound like. It's also why we have difficulty understanding people from other parts of the country who have pronounced accents. And now I'm also finding out that I trip over my words more often than I used to. And because I'm in a speaking profession, I do that more often than most people. Frankly, I always have, but now it's worse. I've also discovered that sometimes it's harder to find the right word. And my brain will simply supply a similar word, even though it's wrong. So as you're taking pity on me and making me good things to eat, and if I ask you to put a slice of potato on my sandwich, I probably mean a slice of tomato. But I hesitated, and my brain supplied a similar word. Anyway, that's my excuse, and I'm sticking with it. So now what all of this has meant is I've had to learn how to become intentional about hearing, something I've essentially taken for granted. I can no longer assume that just because you've said something that A, I've heard it, and two, that I've heard it correctly. So how does one become intentional about hearing? Well, I am far from an expert on this, and I'm at the very beginning of the learning curve. But I've learned over the past few months that I have to look at people when they're speaking to me. And I've learned that it helps a great deal if they're looking at me when they're speaking to me. And I've learned that it is enormously difficult for me to hear soft-spoken people. And it's much harder to hear people with both higher-pitched voices and lower-pitched voices. I have to concentrate a lot more in order to hear them. So what does all this have to do with Jeremiah 24 and 25? Well, quite a bit, I think. I was struck as I began preparing for this message, and I got to Jeremiah 25, verse 4, which reads, You have neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear, although the Lord persistently sent you all his servants, the prophets. And it struck me, that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to incline my ears to hear. And it's way harder than it sounds. And that's trying to listen to you. But what's it like when we're trying to listen to God? What does it mean to incline your ears to hear God? Throughout the Bible, listening is the central act of the people of God. They are the ones, we are the ones, who are gathered and formed by his voice and held together by his word. The calling of Old Testament life the centerpiece of Old Testament prayer is found in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
He's not saying, listen up, this is important. He's saying you are called to hear God. That is the primary message of God to his people. Hear the Lord. In the New Testament, you become a disciple by hearing. Listening is the first act of discipleship as fishermen drop their nets and follow when Jesus calls. The Apostle Paul reminds us in Romans 10, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And James teaches us in James 1, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. This is the pattern that gospel life demands. Listen before you speak, learn before you teach, hear the call before you lead, know the word before you preach it. But somewhere along the way, we start to violate the natural order of things. Speaking our minds and asserting ourselves takes priority over listening. We interrupt someone else because we think we already know what he or she is going to say. Women tend to do this to people they know well. Men tend to do this to women, whether they know them or not. And that's true we begin to take up more vocal space than we allow for others. We consider ourselves experts on topics without anything more to learn. We tell God what he should do and what he should give rather than asking what God wants to give. Everyone is talking, but so few people are really listening. And that's exactly the problem in Jeremiah's day. Everyone is talking, but no one is listening. So let's turn to our text today and find out just how seriously God regards our inability to listen, our failure to incline our ears to hear him. Now, as I said, because these chapters are so long, we won't be going over all the verses as we normally do, but we'll be focusing in on a number of key verses in each section. And so we'll begin with an illustration of God's judgment. An illustration of God's judgment. In chapter 24. The prophet Jeremiah had seen some rotten fruit in his time, but nothing to compare with the basket of figs he sees one fine day in 597 B.C. How do we know that year? Because uh, they don't usually tell us the year in the Old Testament. They say things like, verse 1, after Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had taken into exile from Jerusalem, Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. They're, They're giving you a time stamp. This is when this happened. And so we know that happened in 597 B.C., And it says that uh, he has, uh, together with the officials of Judah, the craftsmen and the metal workers, and had brought them to Babylon. So we have now jumped forward time-wise. The exile has already begun. The Babylonians had skimmed the cream off the top of Jewish society. All the court officials, soldiers, civil servants, doctors, lawyers, priests, honor students, and Eagle Scouts have been taken captive. 
2 Kings 24 tells us that Nebuchadnezzar carried away all Jerusalem and all the officials and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives and all the craftsmen and the smiths. <coughs> None remained except the poorest people of the land. In that fateful year, at the very beginning of the exile, the Lord took Jeremiah to the fruit stand by the temple. And the fruit stand is where people are supposed to offer their first fruits to the Lord. This isn't the fruit stand at the farmer's market where you go to buy fruit. This is where you bring your first fruits, your fruit uh, that you're offering uh, at the temple. And in the prophet's own words, picking up again at the end of verse 1, the Lord showed me this vision. Behold, two baskets of figs placed before the temple of the Lord. One basket had very good figs, like first ripe figs, but the other basket had very bad figs, so bad that they could not be eaten. And the Lord said to me, what do you see, Jeremiah? I said, figs, the good figs very good, and the bad figs very bad, so bad that they cannot be eaten. So Jeremiah, Jeremiah may not have been a seller of produce, but he knew a bad fig when he smelled it. And these figs were terrible. And the news gets even worse because the basket of spoiled figs is a symbol that something is rotten in Jerusalem. And we see that starting in verse 8. Like the bad figs that are so bad they cannot be eaten, so I will treat Zedekiah, the king of Judah. Zedekiah is the last king before the exile. I will treat Zedekiah, the king of Judah, his officials, the remnant of Jerusalem who remain in this land, and those who dwell in the land of Egypt. I will make them a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth, to be a reproach, a byword, a taunt, and a curse in all the places where I shall drive them. And I will send sword, famine, and pestilence among them until they be utterly destroyed from the land that I gave to them and their fathers. This is a promise of judgment against those who disobeyed God. Back in Jeremiah 21, which we went over a few weeks ago, God gave his people a choice. And we saw there in Jeremiah 21, he said, And to this people you shall say, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. He who stays in this city shall die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. But he who goes out and surrenders to the Chaldeans who are besieging uh, you shall live and shall have his life as a prize of war. For I have set my face against this city for harm and not for good, declares the Lord. <coughs> and it shall be given into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall burn it with fire. So the way of life is to go into exile. Exile sounds bad. We would think that's the way of death. But he says surrender is your only hope of survival. The way of death is to remain in Jerusalem. It all sounds opposite. With Zedekiah, who's now the puppet king of the Babylonians. And God has determined to do the city harm and not good. The king of Babylon would burn it with fire. Whoever stayed in the city shall die by sword, by famine, and by pestilence. 
It was turn or burn for the citizens of Jerusalem. So the bad figs represent the people who stayed in Jerusalem. And yet they thought they were the favored sons. They thought they were the good figs because they thought they had the blessings. They thought they were still God's chosen people. They thought they'd be safe in Jerusalem. But God had told them to go to Babylon and not to stay in Jerusalem. And they were unwilling to do that because they knew that exile would involve suffering. The irony is that by staying in Jerusalem, they suffered so much more which is generally what happens when people disobey God. And once God's people realize they were cursed, then they want to run to Egypt. But God had made them an object of ridicule and scorn and cursing to the nations. Once fruit is rotten, it stays rotten. It stays spoiled, even if it gets put in the fridge. And that principle holds true for spiritual things as well. If God's people stayed in Jerusalem, they would be rotten. If they went down to Egypt, they would be rotten there too. Wherever they went, anywhere in the world, the smell of their disobedience would be just as bad. The message of the bad figs was that the people who stayed in Jerusalem were rotten and needed to be thrown out. However, there's two baskets. One of the baskets Jeremiah saw had very good figs, like first ripe figs. These figs look great. In fact, their skin looked so fresh they could hardly be ripe, yet they were. They matured early and tasted as good as they looked. And ripe figs in that part of the world are considered a delicacy. So the good figs were very good. And the message of the good figs is even better, starting at verse 5. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, like these good figs, So I will regard as good the exiles from Judah, whom I have sent away from this place to the land of the Chaldeans. I will set my eyes on them for good, and I will bring them back to this land. I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not pluck them up. I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return to me with their whole heart. Jeremiah Jeremiah has waited a long time to deliver good news. When God first called Jeremiah, he told them all the way back in chapter 1, See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. And God's choice of verbs on that occasion made it apparent that curses, pluck up, break down, destroy, overthrow, would outweigh the blessings, build and plant by a ratio of two to one. It explains why Jeremiah's had so much to say about overthrowing and uprooting. But now finally, he has something to say about building and planting. The people of God could do something besides just sit in a basket and go bad. Exile in Babylon wasn't just a curse. By the grace of God, the exiles could become fresh and fruitful they would become the good figs. And the promises God made to the exiles from Judah are covenant promises. He offers them nothing less than the chief blessing of the covenant, personal knowledge of God himself. Now, in his book, Knowing God, uh, J.I. Packer, 
By the way, I have a little footnote here. If you've never read that, that's the top of your list. Every now and then I publish a list of you know, the 25 Christian books you ought to read once in your life. This is number one, Knowing God by J.I. Packer. And at a chapter entitled Knowing and Being Known, he writes, what were we made for to know God? What aim should we set ourselves in life to know God? What is the eternal life that Jesus gives? Knowledge of God, John 17, 3. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. What is the best thing in this life and the next? What will bring more joy, delight, and contentment than anything else? Knowledge of God. Jeremiah has already said that back in Jeremiah 9, which said, Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, nor the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. To know God is the best knowledge of all, which is why the promise of the good figs is the best possible news. Verse 7, I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord. But again, it's the exiles who are the good figs. So one final point before we move on. Before seeing how much there is to know of God, we have to realize that such knowledge often comes through suffering. Unlike the bad figs, the good figs are told to follow God right into suffering. They're not going down with the city. There is a way of escape for them, but the way of escape led through Babylon. The good figs were exiles who had to endure a lifetime of slavery to the Babylonians. They were forced to sit down by the waters of Babylon, hang their harps on the poplars, and weep for Zion. And that comes from Psalm 137. It's also a great song, and if my voice was good, I'd sing it for you, but... We have to skip that today. It is a lament. I'm not going to do it. Anyway, <laughs> in order to know God, they have to pass through the refining fires of suffering for 70 years. Think about how old you are, anybody. And what you'll be in 70 years. The majority of us won't be here. These are the good figs. These are the guys that are getting the good promises. These are the ones that are getting the blessings. But it's slavery for 70 years. Other than that, it's all great. And we have to understand that knowing God does not come by avoiding suffering. It comes through suffering. Suffering brings an increased knowledge of God. The Old Testament people of God could not come to know God to the necessary depth except through suffering. Their exile in Babylon was no accident. It's part of God's sovereign plan of redemption. The Israelites would not come to know God in spite of their suffering, but because of their suffering. That's the illustration that he's making with these two baskets of figs. But then comes the argument. So he's made the illustration of the good and bad figs, 
And now's the argument, and Jeremiah makes the case for God's judgment, starting at chapter 25. And we are now at the center of the book of Jeremiah. These words are spoken at the midpoint of Jeremiah's prophetic career. And so right here in the center, there is a key word. Now, most people want to focus in on the 70 weeks, and what does that mean for prophecy, and everybody thinks that's so cool. That's actually a minor point in this text. The major point is found by focusing in on the key word. And the key word is hashkem, which is translated as persistently. But this word has a picture behind it. Hashkem is the root of the word shechem. And shechem means shoulder. At the center of Palestine, there are two immense shoulder mountains, Ebal and Gerizim. And the village nestled between these two massive mountains, these shoulder mountains, is named Shechem. And when the Israelites first came into the land after wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, Joshua led them to Shechem, lined them up on the slopes of the two shoulder mountains, half on one slope and half on the other. And they reviewed the word of God that had directed them there. And from one shoulder, the blessings were called out that would come from a life of worshipful trust. And from the other shoulder, the curses were called out that would come from a life of rebellious self-centeredness. And Shechem was the center where the word of God was spoken and listened to. And then, as words often do, Shechem developed another meaning. So when you went on a trip in those days, you loaded provisions for the journey on your donkey's Shoulders, or you loaded them on your own shoulders if you didn't have a donkey, and you set out. So the noun, shoulder, developed into a verb that meant bear the load for a day's journey. Today we would say he shouldered a burden. And it's, that's the form that's used here at the center of Jeremiah, the midpoint of his life in his book. Verse 3. For 23 years, from the 13th year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, to this day, the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken persistently to you. I have spoken hashkem. I have shouldered this. But you have not listened. For 23 years, Jeremiah got up every morning and listened to God's word. For 23 years, Jeremiah went to his personal Shechem and put the burden of God's word on his back. For 23 years, Jeremiah has shouldered the word of the Lord. For 23 years, Jeremiah got up every morning and spoke God's word to the people. And for 23 years, the people slept in sluggish and lazy and heard nothing. The word is not only at the center of Jeremiah's book and Jeremiah's life, it is spread out across his ministry. For what it's worth, I am in my 23rd year here. You may make of that what you will. There are 11 instances where this word is used in Jeremiah. It's always used the same way. I'm not going to read them all, but the best example is found in Jeremiah 7. It says, from the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, to them day after day, yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. 
You see, Israel's been going bad for a long time. And chapter 25 is a prophecy Jeremiah has made eight years earlier before chapter 24. Jeremiah is not written in chronological order. As best as we can tell, it was made in 605 B.C., the year the Babylonians defeated the Egyptians at Carchemish, which is one of the great battles of the ancient world. And the prophecy appears at this point in Jeremiah's book because it explains how the bad figs went bad in the first place. It's telling us how this happened. And as we have seen, it was not for lack of warning. The prophet's been warning the people for 23 years. And Jeremiah is not the only one picking up at verse 4. You have neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear, although the Lord persistently sent to you all his servants, the prophets. God understands the value of repetition. In the Bible, he repeatedly warns his people about the things he hates. And that's grace. Because that people keep his people guessing uh, how to please him. He gives precise instructions over and over and over and over again. However, God also holds people responsible for every warning they ignore. So perhaps there's value in repeating the warnings that God has given us again and again throughout the book of Jeremiah. He's told us, do not worship other gods. Do not forget your love for the Lord. Do not fool around with sexual sin. Do not love yourselves more than your children. Do not ignore the poor. Do not listen to false teaching. Do not boast in your wisdom, your strength, or your riches. Do not dishonor the Lord's day. Do not live for things. And do not serve any king but Christ, the coming Messiah. And the consequences of ignoring such warnings are always devastating. In the case of the people of Jerusalem, judgment will include invasion, humiliation, destruction, and desolation. That doesn't sound good. God has finally sent Nebuchadnezzar to deliver a message the people can't ignore. Look at verse 8. Therefore, says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, the word obey uses the same root word as the word hear. Those are always connected in the Old Testament in Hebrew. Behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. And I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will banish from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the grinding of the millstones and the light of the lamp. There's going to be no more joy in Jerusalem. Everyday life, as the people knew it, will come to an end. The activities of daily life, work and weddings, would cease. Now, it'd be really easy to just blame Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, he's the bad guy coming in. He's the king from the north. And yet the judgment he brought came from the Lord, which is why Nebuchadnezzar is referred to as God's servant in verse 9. And that's baffling, too. He's the bad guy. He's doing what God wants him to do. And God says, he's my servant. That's hard to understand. If Nebuchadnezzar is God's servant, then it would be even easier to blame God for all their troubles. Yet those who refuse to listen to God really only have themselves to blame. In verse 7, it says, 
Yet you have not listened to me, declares the Lord, that you might provoke me to anger with the work of your hands to your own harm. Why does God punish people for their sins? Usually part of the answer is that people bring themselves under judgment. Most of the wounds people suffer for disobedience are self-inflicted. To choose sin is to choose its consequences. And yes, God can forgive your sin, but it is very rare that he removes the consequences. C.S. Lewis says the unregenerate pay their own way to hell. In his masterful book, The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis argued, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. To those who knock, it is opened. And so all of these words, as harsh as they are, are a warning to don't ignore God's warning. Don't choose to go your own way. If you want to escape the wrath of God, you must leave your sins behind and come to Christ. You must admit that you're the idolater, the adulterer, the oppressor. We have to confess that we're boastful, selfish, and loveless. And then we have to ask God to accept the sacrifice Jesus made when he died on the cross for your sins. And if you do not accept Jesus Christ, Jeremiah has pronounced your doom already. That's what he says in verse 7. Essentially, you've brought harm to yourself. You will end up like a rotten fig at the bottom of the basket. But that's not all the bad news. Because then Jeremiah tells him about the cup of God's judgment. The last part of chapter 25. The cup of God's judgment. Now God offers a cup to his enemies. A cup of divine judgment. It's the bitter cup of God's wrath prepared for the nations. God has mixed a strong and vile drink, poured it into a cup, and handed it to Jeremiah. And the wine has been prepared for all the nations of the world. Verse 15, thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. First to drink, the, these, this is a section that you would never preach if you were skipping around. We would always skip this section. It's only by, because we just go straight through the chapters and, and do the whole thing that you wind up preaching these sections. Nobody would ever choose to preach. I mean, somebody would because they're nuts, but, you know, we would never choose this one. But God put it here for a reason. You know, I tell my students, don't skip anything. God put it there for a reason. It's your job to figure out what the reason is and then tell everybody else. And if you skip it, you're not doing your job. They don't appreciate it either. Anyways, the first to drink the wine of God's wrath are the kings of Judah with all the officials of Jerusalem. God didn't overlook sin among his own people. Judgment always begins with the house of God. And we're very quick to point fingers out there but biblically, we should always point fingers in here first. And so that's what he does. And then Jeremiah passes the cup to the other nations of the world. He goes as God's ambassador, but not to pursue diplomacy. When God called Jeremiah to be a prophet, again, back in 
Jeremiah 1, he said, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and overthrow. God, Jeremiah, uh, God sent Jeremiah over the nations to serve them with divine judgment. And the nations Jeremiah served are listed in this prophecy. I'm not going to read them all, just know that it includes them all. The nations united around a banqueting table for an unholy communion of bitter wine. The list ends with verse 26. All the kings of the north, far and near, one after another, and all the kingdoms of the world that are on the face of the earth. And after them, the king of Babylon shall drink. It's like the Olympics of divine judgment. And all the nations were there. And even Babylon, the mightiest empire of Jeremiah's day, would have to drink the cup of God's judgment. No person, no nation, no empire could escape the wrath to come. Can the nations refuse to drink? Can they abstain from this cup? No. Starting at verse 27. Then you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Drink, be drunk, and vomit. Right there in the text. Fall and rise no more because of the sword that I am sending among you. And if they refuse to accept the cup from your hand to drink, then you shall say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, you must drink. Now when God says, take from my hand this cup, drink, be drunk, and vomit, you must drink, it's not an invitation. It's a command. The nations must drink the judgment of God. So what's it like to drink the wine of God's judgment? What does the bitter cup of God's wrath do to you? Verse 16, they shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among you. This is strong drink indeed. It's a goblet of staggering madness. So here in Jeremiah, we see the bitter cup of God's wrath in the hands of the nations. This unholy intoxication is going to befall the world because of all the sin. And the nations will drink the cup filled with the wine of God's wrath. They will drink the cup of God's wrath against sin because God rules the nations. We saw that in Psalm 2, our responsive reading this morning. And he will bring them to justice for their sins. And someday the nations will stagger and reel under the weight of God's judgment. They will stagger, reel, and wretch and fall to rise no more. The cup of wrath they drink will come from the hand of God, and God is the one who will make them drink it. Now, doesn't that make you feel good? I mean, it's meant to make you feel bad. It's meant to get your attention. It's meant as a warning. It's trying to say, wake up, listen, hear. God's judgment is real. I mean, in some degree, Jeremiah is trying to scare them and us, and he's doing a pretty good job of it. The bitter cup of God's wrath has been mixed for every sinner who doesn't repent. A cup of judgment's been prepared for every sinner who rejects God and his son Jesus. When the Old Testament speaks of God's judgment, it often describes it as a cup of wrath prepared for sinners. We see this Psalm 75. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. It appears in the prophets, Isaiah 51. 
Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. And now it's a party. The cup of wrath is not just for Jeremiah's day. It's not just an Old Testament figure of speech. The cup of wrath is stored away for every sinner who doesn't repent. The cup of God's judgment is a present threat for those who don't know Christ as Savior. In the book of Revelation, at the very end of the New Testament, the Apostle John describes the judgment that awaits the man who rejects Christ. Revelation 14. We're going to be pushing the clock a little today. I apologize. It says, He also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest. There is an eternal drinking of the cup filled with the wine of God's wrath, and that cup is bitter all the way down. So we come to the end of this text, and you have to think, would you choose that cup? Would you drink the wine of divine judgment? Would you drink the foaming bowl of God's wrath? Do your hands not tremble at the very thought of grasping a cup of staggering? Do your lips not quiver at the very thought of drinking the cup of God's wrath down to the last drop? What person would dare to drink the bitter cup of God's wrath and swallow divine judgment? One man dares. God has taken away the cup of wrath from the sinner and placed it in the hands of Jesus. It is in the gospel that the bitter cup of God's wrath ends up in the hands of Christ. And at first, Jesus shrank from that awful cup. Anyone who has smelled the bitter aroma of the cup in Jeremiah can understand how Jesus would endure the dark night of the soul in the garden of Gethsemane, or why he would say in Matthew 26, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Jesus is overwhelmed with sorrow because he knew the terror of God's wrath. He knew the Old Testament prophecies about the cup of God's wrath. He knew how bitter that cup would be. He knew it was the cup that makes men stagger and go mad. He knew it to be the cup that makes men lie down in their own vomit. He knew it was the cup from which men fall and do not rise. It's the cup of suffering, even the sufferings of the cross. He knew it to be the cup of death. And it was because Jesus knew the cup of God's wrath was a cup of staggering unto death that he said, Matthew 26, verse 39, and going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Here we see Jesus at the point where he didn't want to drink the cup of wrath against our sins. Here, therefore, we see how terrible our sins actually are. Like the disciples, we're often asleep in the garden. We're dozing through the Christian life, ambivalent about our sin, but were we to watch and pray, to kneel beside our Savior in the grass, to hear his cries of anguish, to see the bloody sweat on his brow, we would see the fearfulness of God's wrath, and then we would know the sinfulness of our sin. Jesus took the bitter cup of God's wrath, 
you want proof of the sinfulness of sin, here it is. If you want proof of the reality of divine judgment, here it is. If the Son of God himself hesitated to drink such a cup, will you be so bold as to drink it yourself? The amazing thing is Jesus took the cup of God's wrath into his own hands and drank it down to the very dregs. Note the courageous words of our Lord Jesus. We read Matthew 26, 42. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass, unless I drink it, your will be done. You know, the first time it was, if it be possible. And the second time, it's, if this cannot pass, your will be done. That's the willing, active obedience of Jesus. If it was impossible, but indeed, since it is not possible, Jesus was willing to drink the cup. The Son of God knew the will of his Father. He knew the Father was saying, take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath. He knew he had to endure the cross set before him, despising the shame. And he knew there was no way to save his people from this bitter cup except to drink it himself. The bitter cup must be consumed. If Christ is to win salvation for his people, God's wrath has to be turned aside. God's anger against our sin has to be propitiated, satisfied for his righteousness not tolerate our sin, any of our sin. So Jesus Christ came to take our sins upon himself. He came to suffer the punishment for our sins. He came to drink the bitter cup of God's wrath that our sins deserved. But when Jesus came to drink that cup, then the bitter cup of God's wrath was no longer in the hands of a sinner. Quite the contrary. The bitter cup of God's wrath is in the hands of the sinless one, Jesus Christ, the Son of God and Savior of sinners. Which is why when you join this church, you profess your faith by promising to receive and rest in him alone for salvation as he is offered in the gospel. And the cup didn't stay in Jesus' hands for long because he drained it. He drank the bitter wine of God's wrath down to the very dregs. And this is why the sufferings of Christ are the ultimate sufferings. He drank the full measure of God's wrath down to the last drop. He didn't save any for you. Jesus endured every imprint of every thorn upon his head, every stripe upon his back, every nail in his hands. He endured all those things until the very moment when he cried out, it is finished, in John 19. Finished indeed, for when the cup filled with the wine of God's wrath passed into the hands of Christ, it became an empty cup. If you know you're a sinner and you know there's No need for you to drink the cup of God's wrath. If your hand trembles, if your lips quiver, give the cup to Christ. Pass the cup to Christ. He's drunk down the wrath of God. Let Jesus drink the cup of God's wrath in your place. Christ drank down the cup of God's wrath wrath in the place of his people, in your place and in my place. There is no cup left for us to drink. It is on the basis of the work of Christ that God declares in Isaiah 51, thus says the Lord, your Lord, the Lord, your God who pleads the cause of his people, behold, I have taken from your hands the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath, you shall drink no more. But there is one cup left. We have seen the bitter cup of God's wrath in the hands of the sinner and then on the lips of Christ. 
And that's the cup we deserve, the wine of staggering. But there is another cup. A cup that comes from the hand of God, a cup that contains the sweet wine of God's love. It is the cup that stands on the Lord's table month after month after month. Remember what Jesus did for his disciples? Remember what he does for us. Again, Matthew 26, he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to him and said, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it with you in my Father's kingdom. Jesus offers all his disciples a new cup, a cup of the new covenant in his blood shed for many for the remission of sins. The cup of wrath has been taken away from those who follow Christ, never to be tasted again. But there is a new cup to replace it. And Jesus says, take from my hand this cup of the wine of grace, this cup of salvation from sin, this cup of victory over death cup that pours out forgiveness, the forgiveness Christ earned for us when he drained the cup of divine judgment. There could be no new cup unless Christ had been willing to drink the old cup of God's judgment, but drink it he did. And now that God's wrath has been swallowed by Christ, you can hold out your hand to receive this sweet cup of God's love. God's word assures us there's no dregs in the cup of God's love. You can drink and drink and drink. You can drink it and it will be sweet all the way down. And there is enough to drink forever and ever and ever in the eternal kingdom of God. And drink as long as you may, drink as deeply as you may, gulp down as much of God's mercy as you may, for you will never taste God's wrath because he did. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Thank you for your patience. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that once again... You have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. God, our Father, we confess to you that way too often uh, we are spiritually staggering drunks. We think we know what's best and we're afraid to follow you through the water of suffering, even though you promise to be with us every step of the way and you promise us this great privilege of knowing you now and for eternity. Give us a greater desire to know your word to know that it's powerful in and of itself, that it's relevant to every situation of our lives, to believe it comes from your hand. Forgive us for our lack of faith. Forgive us for being overwhelmed by our own fears. And work in each of us this year as we live with the prophet Jeremiah, as we see what he sees, and as we hear what he hears. Teach us to respond with greater faith and renewed confidence in your word an ever-increasing trust in your great and precious promises. And through these things, draw us ever closer to your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.